0: This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for August 4th, 2017. I'm Sarah Crusty. In this week's show, Inez Cuthel talks about the biology of color, how we can learn about making, seeing, evolving, and moving colors. Mary Soon Lee is here with some elemental haiku, 119 poems drawn from the periodic table. And David Grimm gives us this week's hits from the online news site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. Welcome, Dave. Hi, Sarah. First up, we have a story on Alzheimer's disease in chimps. Let's start out with this possibility that chimps, that chimpanzees actually get Alzheimer's. Do they get Alzheimer's, Dave? And do other primates get Alzheimer's?
1: Well, you need three things to be considered having Alzheimer's. One is dementia. And the other two are sort of abnormalities in the brain, one called amyloid plaques, which are these sort of sticky accumulations of misfolded proteins. Another one called neurofibrillary tangles. These are sort of formed when proteins called tau, they clump into these long filaments, twist around each other. So both of these are thought to cause damage to the cells in the brain. And none of these things have all been seen in the same animal except for humans.
0: Okay. And now we're going to talk about how there may be some clues that this is happening in chimps, but I want to get out of the way of this problem that in the US, chimps are considered are now considered endangered animals, and invasive studies of them are off limits. How can there be new evidence for what's going on in their brains? It's a
1: great question. So it turns out that this study had to rely very heavily on a newly founded center that collects brains from chimpanzees after they die. If they die at zoos or research centers or whatever, this facility has access to their brains. So the research, all this research was actually done on brains of chimps that had already died.
0: And... What did they see when they looked at this panoply of dead chimp brains?
1: Well, strikingly, they saw that 13 of the 20 brains that they looked at had amyloid plaques, and four of those also had the neurofibrillary tangles. So this makes chimpanzees the first animal where both the plaques and the tangles have been seen in the same brain as they are in humans.
0: But what's missing here is that third ingredient, dementia. Is there any evidence that these chimps had dementia in their
1: life? There is not. And that's really the big obstacle here because in order to do that, then you have to start to do potentially some of these studies which are now off limits, including potentially doing MRI scans, which are a big no-no now with chimps. But even less invasive studies might be really hard to conduct considering that most research on chimps is now phased out in the U.S.
0: Now we have a story on prions and diabetes. Prion diseases, like mad cow, involve a misfolded protein. And this misfolded protein triggers correctly folded proteins to also misfold. And all of these bad guys aggregate into clumps, tangles, and plaques like we were talking about with Alzheimer's. But the key difference between a prion disease and Alzheimer's is this cascade of misfolding. You can introduce a misfolded protein and get everybody else to do the same thing. Now there's a possibility that the same thing, the same cascade, might be happening in diabetes. Dave, what protein are we talking about? And we're not in the brain, right? We're in the pancreas.
1: We're in the pancreas. And you should also ask what type of diabetes we're talking about because we're talking about type 2 diabetes. And the protein is called... Islet amyloid polypeptide, or IAPP, and it's actually very similar to the beta amyloid protein that accumulates in Alzheimer's disease, but as you mentioned, Sarah, it's in the pancreas. And what the scientists found in this new study was that they could get the normal version of this protein to start misfolding, to create this sort of misfolding cascade by introducing these misfolded IAPP proteins, very similar to like you see with mad cow.
0: And in, in mad cow, you can inject the protein and get clumps from one animal to another. Were they able to do that here as well with, you know, moving the proteins from one animal to another?
1: They did. They, they, well, what they showed was when they injected mice with a misfolded protein or a synthetic version of the misfolded protein that they created in the lab that was enough to sort of start this cascade in the mice. And not only that, but these mice started to come down with symptoms very similar to type 2 diabetes. A lot of the cells in their pancreas were starting to die, preventing the pancreas from releasing insulin, which helps regulate blood sugar.
0: This is a really interesting mechanism for possible understanding of diabetes. But is anyone suggesting here that People are getting diabetes from an external source, that it's transmitted from animals or other people.
1: No, nobody's suggesting that quite yet. First of all, it's in mice. Second of all, this wouldn't be transmitted like the flu, like you couldn't just be next to somebody with type 2 diabetes and get type 2 diabetes. if And that's assuming all of this stuff holds true for people. But what they are saying is that things like blood transfusions or even eating uh, the meat of animals that may have a very similar type of disease going on, just like with mad cow, that could potentially be a way to transmit type 2 diabetes from person to person or from another source to a person. Although, None of this has been shown yet.
0: Right. I mean, even with mad cow, which does have an eating component, you have to eat the brain or spinal cord of a cow. That's right. And even then, chances are not very high that you get it. That's right. Now for something different. Catherine Matisik has dropped by to talk about her story on the pros and cons of industrial espionage. Um, So Catherine, hello. Hi, Sarah. (laughs) This question has been a tough one to answer. What is the payoff for industrial espionage in the long run?
2: So way back in the 6th century, there was a pretty big payoff in the Byzantine Empire. There were two Nestorian monks who found the secret of silk production in China and ended up smuggling a couple of silkworms all the way back to the Byzantine Empire where they essentially broke the Chinese monopoly on silk. Uh, There was a pretty big payoff because silk at the time was quite expensive. Um, And it also paid off uh, for the Soviets back in the last century when espionage helped them come up with the plans for the atomic bomb. Now this is all like long-term stuff but there is a new study that looks at more than just sort of this anecdotal evidence. There's like a quantitative aspect. Yeah, to it. there's a quantitative aspect to it. You know, nothing has ever been measured in terms of, you know, what is the effect of espionage in the long run like you were talking. It's you all put, stories. You put money in. You know, you you pay your spies, you get their fancy
0: cube equipment, and then- If you want to invest in it, yes. Yeah, and then, you you know, you get some kind of economic payoff from moving the technology into your country. And so now you have a data set that says this is how much spying costs, and this is- with a lot of math, how much spying earned us. What is this data set?
2: Right. So this data set, which is pretty unique, nobody's ever looked at spying in this way before, it came from East Germany's or the former East Germany's Ministry for Security, otherwise known as the Stasi. It actually emerged after the fall of the Berlin Wall many years later in about 1998. This was a whole database of almost like 190,000 pieces of information that East German spies stole. and They this, stole it all from West Germany? So a lot of it came from West Germany, um, but there was some information that was taken from other Western countries, including the United States, but the bulk of their spies were based in West Germany. Um, they weren't able to actually see Uh, what the pieces of information were that were stolen, but what they could see uh, is the names of the informants that got the information, so like their code names. Um, They could see when the information had been collected and how valuable the information was, because the East Germans had a pretty robust evaluation system for this information as it came in, and they'd had like a one-to-five ranking system. And if you got a rank of one for something that you turned in, that meant that at least in the mid-'70s, it was worth about 150,000 West German marks. So they don't know
0: what the piece of information was, but they have all this metadata on the information. And then they crunched the numbers and they figured out what – the payoff was for most of the content of the database?
2: Yeah. So what the economists did is they divided their data into 16 different sectors of the economy, uh, everything from chemicals to electronics. And then they looked at how well each of these sectors performed in something called total factor productivity, sort of a measure of how efficient your economy is, how well you use things like labor and capital. And this total factor productivity is often linked to innovation. So what they did was they looked at growth in this thing, TFP, for East Germany and West Germany From 1970 to 1988, what they determined was that this industrial spying boosted East Germany's total factor productivity and allowed it to catch up to the West by some like 8.6%. Okay. And what about the money part? So did
0: this boost in their economy in terms of dollar amounts equal their input that they were putting in every year to their spying organization? So
2: in that regard, it looks like spying actually was a pretty good investment. Mm-hmm. Um, the researchers calculated that by the last year, the spying was going on right before the wall fell. East Germany was essentially making some 4.6 billion euros, but they were pouring in you know, only a couple of million uh, in the acquisition. I'm sensing a but here. Yes, this is this is where things get fun. So it sounds like this is a really great idea. You know, you, you put a little bit of money in, you get a big payoff. The problem was this uh, type of investment can only take you so far. So it helped the East catch up to the West, but they were already so far behind that they were never able to really close sort of that gap. Um, the other thing that the researchers really highlighted in this paper was that they were basically cannibalizing investment in research and development. One researcher actually had a really great way of putting it. He said that this kind of spying is essentially research and development or R&D on cocaine. (laughs) It helps you do a lot really fast in the short term, but it might not be very good for you in the long run. Okay. Thank you, Catherine.
0: Okay, Dave, what else is on the site this week?
1: Well, Sarah, we've got a story about where some of the earliest asteroids in the solar system came from. Also a story about whether the ancient Greeks were related to the famed Mycenaeans of various fabled epics. And for Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about how a French drug trial tragedy has prompted the EU to adopt new rules to protect study volunteers. Also a story about a massive peer review fraud in China and what the government is doing about it. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site.
0: Thanks, Dave. Thanks, sir. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. This week's episode is brought to you by Hackable, a new podcast from McAfee. These days, we're so plugged in that everything we do exists digitally. Social media, email, banking, our identities can all be found online. So how worried should we be about the threat of a possible cyber attack? Hackable explores this very question with the help of cybersecurity experts, in-depth experiments, and, of course, pop culture. The pilot episode, for instance, attempts to replicate that incredible opening scene of Mr. Robot, where the main character, Elliot, easily taps into a coffee shop's Wi-Fi network and uncovers some unnerving secrets. It's like Mythbusters meets Mr. Robot. It's incredibly entertaining, informative, and applicable to anyone who spends a lot of time online. And let's face it, that's all of us. You'll definitely learn a thing or two about the realities of your cybersecurity. Listen to Hackable in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. The biology of color has a long history, and each new tool or paradigm in biology takes on the problem of coloration. Inez Cuthill is here to talk about the state of the field and what comes next in color. Welcome, Inez.
3: Hello, Sarah.
0: Reading this review, which is written by quite a few people, I find it's really jam-packed with animals, colors, techniques, areas of inquiry. It definitely gets across this idea that the biology of color is a multidisciplinary effort. Uh, What is your tack, and, and how do you study this specifically?
3: Well, I'm a behavioural ecologist, which means I'm interested in why particular colour patterns or displays have evolved and the role they play in an animal's life. And the interesting thing about many animal colours is that they're adaptations not so much to the physical environment as to the perception and mind of another species, So, for example, if you want to understand insect camouflage, you need to know what the colours of the insect look like to its predators, which are probably birds and have very different sorts of vision from humans. That necessarily means that you have to collaborate with sensory biologists You have to collaborate with psychologists who are interested in how visual information is processed. So it really is an interdisciplinary adventure.
0: Hmm. Another point that really seemed illuminating to me is that Color is really the manipulation of light that many biological phenomena are aimed at this goal of, you know, changing how light is perceived. And most of us think of pigment as the way to get that done, but structural color is also a biological route to manipulating light. What kind of research is being carried out in this area?
3: Well, you're absolutely right that um, the most common way of being coloured is by absorbing some wavelengths, and that's what pigments do. But structural colours interfere with light, and this really is happening at, at the nanoscale. So there's lots of interest from physicists and engineers, not just biologists, particularly in understanding how animals can produce a dazzling array of different colors that we as humans in manufacturing find difficult. So this is a source of research where there's going to be bio-inspired solutions. Not my own area of research, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, it's certainly very active at the moment.
0: Yeah, I think it's really amazing to think that an animal has developed a way to lay down these finely tuned little bumps that interact with light at the nanoscale and, you know, provide iridescence or different colors. And it's, you know, it has to develop that over time. It's just, that's really fascinating. Okay, let's take this to the other side of the eyeball or the light receptor. How light is perceived is also part of the biology of color. What are other organisms doing differently than people what can they see that we can't and how can we capture that and understand it
3: okay to understand how other animals see color perhaps the best place to start is is how we see color now a physicist might tell you an apple is red because the pigments in the apple absorb light at shorter wavelengths leaving only the long wavelengths of light which we might call red but there's more to it than that because our percept of light and colour really just depends on three bits of information. The amount of light at short, medium and long wavelengths. And that corresponds to the sensitivity of the light receptors in, in our eye. And that's how a television works, by mixing together red, green and blue colours. However, other animals have photoreceptors with different sensitivities. So they're sampling and dividing up the spectrum in very different ways from us.
0: So they not only can see more fine scale differences in color, but they can also see UV. They can also see polarized light. What do we think those things might be signaling in the animals?
3: Yes. I mean, right from the early 20th century, it was discovered that bees could see ultraviolet light. But today we we know that lots of animals can. And it's tempting to say, well, what's special about ultraviolet vision? Why is it favoured? But actually, maybe we should be asking, well, why don't we have ultraviolet Mm -hmm. vision? It's humans uh, and other primates that are perhaps a bit unusual. One possible explanation is that short wavelengths like ultraviolet are scattered a lot. That's why photographers put a UV blocking filter on their camera so they get nice sharp pictures of landscapes at a distance. So maybe primates like humans, which have high acuity, fine resolution vision, we don't want that scattering of short wavelengths. Mm -hmm. But for many other animals, uh, that high acuity is maybe not needed
0: looking back in time, you know, much further back now is possible. What's happening in paleo coloration studies?
3: Well, if we go back a decade or so, people would have assumed that it would be impossible to understand the color of extinct animals because it was assumed that uh, the pigments or structures that produce color wouldn't fossilize. But um, my colleague, Jakob Winter, when he was just a PhD student in Yale, he realized that actually in some exceptionally preserved feathers, that's fossil bird feathers and fossil dinosaur feathers, the the melanin, the, the pigment that creates browns and reddish brown colors, that actually is sometimes preserved. And sometimes you can even see the patterns too, so you could tell that some types of dinosaurs might have had had stripy tails, for example.
0: Very cool. Inez, thanks so much for talking with me.
3: It's been a pleasure.
0: Inez Cuthill and colleagues review the biology of color in this week's issue of Science. This week, Science's letter section is filled up with Poetry, 119 Elemental Haiku, produced by Mary Soon Lee. She's here to read some of these poems and tell us about how these tiny self-contained tales came about. Welcome, Mary. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. Well, can we just start with you reading one of your favorites from this collection? We've got 119 elements to choose from here. Which one would you pick?
4: I'm fond of fluorine, atomic number nine. Fluorine. F. Tantrums. Explosions. First step. Admit the problem. Electron envy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That was one of the first ones I actually went to when I saw. I printed out this collection and looked through it. You know, I went to carbon, hydrogen, boron, sodium. And you know, you captured something about them in your writing that really resonates with my thinking about these elements, the kind of personalities I'd unknowingly assigned to these substances. Did you start with, you know, elements that you already kind of had a feeling about? Or did you, you know, did you have to do research for some and just have an instinctual idea about the others?
4: Thank you. I wrote them in order of increasing atomic number hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon, all the way to the end of the periodic table. And I tried to write one a day, so it took me about four months, all told. I did research most of the elements, but sometimes I ended up disregarding that research, (laughs) either because I drew on information that I had known before, or because I decided on a more whimsical approach, such as the haiku for potassium or yttrium. Why don't you read one of those? Okay, I'll do potassium. Um, Potassium, K. Leftmost seat, fourth row, yearning for the halogens on the other side.
0: You definitely give each one a personality. (laughs) Um, Thank you. Let's read uh, one more. I think this one is. I think this one's my favorite. Can you read sodium?
4: Absolutely. Um, Sodium, Na. Racing to trigger every kiss, every kind act behind every thought.
0: There's a lot of slightly jarring juxtapositions in these pieces, like like Nickel, for example. I'll try reading this one. Uh, forged in fusion's fire, flung out from supernovae, demoted to coins. is Is having this kind of contrast within the poem part of what makes something a haiku?
4: Well, I think that traditional Japanese haiku have three characteristics one of which is the juxtapositional cut. Um, another is a seasonal reference to spring, summer, autumn, or winter. And there's a 575 syllable scheme. I used a loose interpretation of haiku. I don't remember having even one seasonal reference, <laughs> but I do, I do have some of the juxtapositions. And I kept the 575 syllable scheme. And then I tried to evoke each element in a very compact form, which I think poetry often does.
0: Yeah. Condense ideas. What made you decide to take on this task and work your way through all 119?
4: I didn't have any great plan except that I sat down one day and I thought, I'll write a haiku for hydrogen. And then I thought, well, okay, I could do one for helium. And then I just thought to myself okay I could try and get to the end of the periodic table but I wasn't sure whether I'd make it <laughs> <laughs> and
0: what what is your background are you a chemist are you into uh some aspect
4: of science um I would say I'm a science enthusiast but um I grew up in Britain and we specialized very early so I last studied chemistry in high school at university I studied only mathematics plus you know one trimester where I did a little bit of computer science, but basically just mathematics. Then afterwards, I went back and did a computer science um, one-year course. And then I did an astronautics and space engineering (laughs) MSC, but I never did any chemistry since high school.
0: Were some of these particularly difficult to write? Did you just not find them as inspiring as the others?
4: Well, definitely some were harder. Some were very quick to write, um, and others did take me hours. I had thought when I began the project, and also when I was, you know, partway through it, that the end was going to be the hardest. Mm. But as it turned out, I think I had just as much difficulty with some of the lanthanides. I'm not quite sure why. I just did.
0: <laughs> and you didn't even have to find rhymes. No,
4: and that, t- that is helpful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, let's read one more, something with perhaps a higher number.
4: Okay, well, I'll go right to the end of the periodic table as it is at the moment. Atomic number 118. Aganison, OG. The end of the line. Your millisecond half-life brings down the curtain. Because, of course, that's as far as we've got so far. <laughs> that
0: could change any moment. You know? So you don't have a, a last one there?
4: I do have one for... Um, the next element that we would expect, we would expect to get 119 next. Though you never know, we could get 120 or something. Anyway, um, I do have that one if you want, the 119. Oh, no,
0: I think we're going to make people go online and, and read them all. Uh, oh, they, that's good.
4: That's good. <laughs> Mary,
0: thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you very much. It was fun. Mary Soon-Lee contributed 119 elemental poems to this week's issue of Science. If you want to read more... And I highly suggest that you do check them out at vis, vis.sciencemag.org slash chemhaiku. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. Or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.